Hey, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm coming to you today from Sarasota, Florida. I'm at Nathan Bederson Park, a premier world-class rowing facility. I was actually here well, last Thanksgiving, a couple months ago, to run a 5K with my crew. Love this spot, love Florida, uh, but I'm only here for a weekend. Just came down for a family wedding, going back to Atlanta uh, tomorrow morning, as soon as I can. But I am going to present to you today something that's been on my mind a lot. A lot of people have been asking me about this recently, so I decided I need to explain how I made the frankenfish. Yes, I made a genetically modified organism, a fish that had genes from corals inserted into it. Now, this is a hugely contentious topic, especially in my circles. There's a lot of people that I know that think that genetic engineering is completely immoral, that we're not allowed to monkey around with God's creation, etc. And it's also coming to the fore when we're talking about medicines and vaccines and things like that. And so there's lots of contention, lots of debate. But I figure that the greatest way to understand genetic engineering and its implications is just to go through an example of how genetic engineering is done. And since I've done it, I'm going to explain what I did in my graduate work as I stole genes from one organism, got it into another organism, and from that organism, brought it into a third organism. There's nothing here that's inherently difficult. If you've had high school biology, if you remember anything about high school chemistry, I'm going to be referencing a lot of things. They're just high school level material. It, the difficulty comes in when there's so many steps and so many things you have to know in a row to get to the ultimate endpoint. But it also makes it a lot of fun. It's a fascinating exploration into the world of science. And so let's just jump right in. What I was doing in graduate school is I was studying corals. Now a coral is basically like a jellyfish. They're very similar in their anatomy. They're both kind of gooey creatures, but a coral has an exoskeleton. It's a shell. Usually when you see the, the dead coral, you call that the coral, but that's just its skeleton. The organism is beautiful. It, it, they're amazing. They're full of these um, incredible colors. And that's what I was studying in graduate school is looking at these colors. I'm exposing them to ultraviolet light and not ultraviolet light and dark and bright. And I was looking at deep water corals and shallow water corals. And I was trying to figure out what these colors are for because in biology, there's this general rule that form follows function. And as someone who believes in a creator that life was created on purpose, well, I believe that God created things with a purpose. Therefore, if something is in a living organism, there's a purpose to it. Now it's funny because all those years of exploring, I never figured out what the green fluorescent, red fluorescent, and other proteins in these corals were. In fact, I went to um, our uh, invertebrate museum at the University of Miami, and I asked the curator, I said, hey, do we have any deep water corals? And she goes, oh yes. And she brings back to this back shelf, and there's this pickle jar that was put there in like the 1910s or 1920s in a rusty lid and inside were some black corals. Now black corals live in the deep ocean. Black corals, in fact, this particular one was dredged up for more than a mile down. It had never seen a photon of light before it was collected, brought to the surface and thrown in this alcohol. And yet the jar full of alcohol was noticeably green and had been there for this is what, 19, this is about the year 2000. So it's been there 80 or 90 years and the alcohol was still green. So I opened up this pickle jar and I took a sample of the liquid and I brought it back to, um, I think it was a spectrofluorometer, could have been one of several machines, but I, I put a sample in the machine and I hit go and I, I did a fluorescent spectrum, looked at all the absorption wavelengths and the fluorescent wavelengths and it was exactly the same as a green fluorescent protein. And yet this thing was from deep water. So the hypothesis that most people are going with is that these colors in these corals are photoprotective. 
I don't think that's true. And yet all this exploring that I did, I never actually figured out what the stuff was for because I got sidelined into the amazing world of genetics. I was doing chemical extractions. I was taking corals and, and chopping them up and running through all these different chemicals, trying to figure out what these proteins, I didn't know what the proteins yet, what these colors were, what chemicals are causing these colors. And nothing worked until I did a protein extract. And I had this gooey, proteinaceous stuff that was bright green. I said, these things are proteins? That's weird because I made a proteins and I don't fluoresce in the dark. Actually, no, let me correct that. Corals don't glow in the dark. Fluorescence is not bioluminescence. They're very different things. A firefly is bioluminescent. There are a lot of cnidarians, that's corals, jellyfish, hydra, things like that, that are bioluminescent. They produce light. Corals do not. They fluoresce. That is, they absorb light at one wavelength and release it at another wavelength. Um, fluorescence is always from a short wavelength to a long wavelength or from a high, frequent, a high, um, high energy to a lower energy. So it shifts it. It might absorb ultraviolet and release green or blue light and release green or it might absorb green and release red. That's fluorescence. That's also different than phosphorescence, like those glow-in-the-dark stars we had as kids we stuck on our ceiling. Um, a phosphorescent thing is something that absorbs light and holds it for a long time. And then it fluoresces it slowly. So it's sort of like a slowed-down version of fluorescence. Fluorescence is pretty fast, like microseconds or milliseconds at best. And that's not the same thing as bioluminescence. Okay. Clearing that up, step one, we have corals and I'm doing these chemical extractions. I figure out their proteins and someone said, hey, Rob, uh, you need to go across the street. The building right next to mine. There's a guy over there who has tanks full of green fluorescent fish. I said, really? So I went over there and I was introduced to the world of the green fluorescent protein. But at the time there was only one. It was a green fluorescent protein that was obtained from a bioluminescent jellyfish. But the jellyfish produces blue light. Why is it green at night? Because there's a green fluorescent protein that absorbs the blue light and refluoresces fluoresces it at, as green. All right. So he had these fish that he had taken his gene from the jellyfish and put it into the fish and they're green. And we started talking. We hit it off. We ended up collaborating for years. Uh, we wrote two patents together, uh, several publications together, and we did some amazing work. So we're talking and after several days of talking, he had a brainstorm. He said, you know, these other guys that are chasing these fluorescent proteins, it's going to take them two years. And he says, I think we can do it in 24 hours. And I took that idea and I ran with it. That was a big part of my doctoral research. The basic idea is this. In order for an organism to have a lot of color, they must produce a lot of protein. In order to produce a lot of protein, they must have much messenger RNA for that protein. So it can be constantly translated into protein. Well, that means if you take all the RNA out of an organism and throw it into, say, E. coli bacteria, well, most of the things will be irrelevant. But the genes that code for the fluorescent proteins, if they appear in an E. coli, it should cause the bacteria to start fluorescing. So you could grab all the RNA out of an organism and throw them all into E. coli at random and then when you're looking at the colonies, oh, there'll be, there's a fluorescent colony. You can pick it out and you have just isolated the gene for the fluorescent protein. And that's what we did. In fact, uh, we reasoned that this is going to be a powerful enough technique that we applied to the Office of Technology Transfer. We said, hey, would you fund this? And they did. 
So it came through the university's patent office. That's where the funding for this research came from. It's an amazing place to be. I cannot believe that God dropped me there at that time. And so, this is what I did. I took a coral. I scraped it with a razor blade. Now, in doing that, a lot of uh, calcium carbonate, a lot of the skeleton is going to get in, in the stuff. That didn't really matter because you just put it in a centrifuge and spin it out. And in order to pull out the RNA, you have to take the RNA, separate it from all the, the mucus, because corals are really mucusy. There were some species where I was not able to, to work on at all because they produce so much mucus, the entire test tube would just be like jello, which is just gross. But some of them produce less mucus, and I was able to pull the RNA out of the mucus and pull the RNA out of the DNA and then reverse transcribe it. Now, interestingly, I didn't need high technology to do this. All I had to do was get online and order a kit. And the kit said, do this, 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 with this, 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 and this ingredients. And at the end, you have DNA. And that's what we did. We took the RNA, we reverse transcribed it into DNA. Now, the thing is, you can't take an animal, because corals are animals, you can't take an animal gene and put it into bacteria. It won't work because bacteria don't have what are called introns. Introns are intervening spaces in a gene that have to be cut out and removed. And then what are called the exons, the protein coding regions, have to be joined together. That has to happen before protein can be made. But bacteria can't produce or they can't process introns. So by targeting the messenger RNA, we had actually already removed the introns. Actually, we let the coral do it. Just the messenger RNA, ready to go, ready to make a protein, throw it into the bacteria. Now, if there's an RNA that the introns hadn't been pulled out, the colony won't turn green. If there's a, something there that wasn't fully processed, it wasn't ready to be a messenger RNA, if the colony wouldn't turn green. We're only looking for the green ones. And we reasoned that there's probably, at that level of, of greenness in this animal, probably one out of every 10,000 RNAs will be a messenger RNA for that protein. We were wrong. It was about one out of 3,000, maybe one out of 1,000. They produce a lot of that messenger RNA. So that was our strategy, and it worked beautifully. I went from a coral to a green fluorescent bacteria in 24 hours. And all we had to do was sequence it, and that was the hard part. Because this is the early days of sequencing. Um, a lot of sequencing was manual. In fact, I was, I was working in one laboratory where I had to pour these gigantic gels between two sheets of glass. And it was like three, four feet long by two feet wide, and there couldn't be any air bubbles. It was the most frustrating thing in the world. But after that, you, you put your, your DNA solution at the top, and a big electric field would run through the gel, and the, and the DNA would go down through the gel, and there was a laser at the bottom. And each of the ACs, Gs, and Ts in your DNA solution will have a different color. And as it came out the end, you would be reading the last letter of each one of the uh, pieces of DNA you have in there. And we just go A, C, G, T, T, T in this, this curvy little thing. It was really cool, uh, but it was very laborious, uh, very difficult. And after a while, we realized that we could just take our sample and send it to the other laboratory at a different place and they would sequence it for $10. And that changed everything because all of a sudden I had GFP or green fluorescent protein sequences coming out of my ears. I had so many sequence, so much sequence data. It was a really interesting place. Great time to be doing this experimenting. Okay, coral DNA has introns. Messenger RNA does not. How do we get the messenger RNA into the bacteria? Well, there's two things we had to do. First, when we were making the DNA, it's called cDNA, that's DNA from the RNA, we tagged it. 
because in biology everything always works in one direction, right? gene transcription is always in one direction, translation is always in one direction, there's always an upstream and a downstream end of any RNA. And as we're making the DNA from the RNA, we could tag the left and the right end of the now DNA with whatever we wanted to. Now we could have put a random sequence of DNA there, which would get everything essentially a barcode, or like what we did, we put a linker on the beginning and the end that we could cut with an enzyme. Okay, a little detour here. Restriction enzymes are one of the most amazing things ever discovered. These are bacterial enzymes that chop up DNA, but they don't chop it up randomly. They chop it up at specific locations, and there are different restriction enzymes that cut different sequences of DNA. They typically cut four, five, six letters, maybe up to eight letters, sometimes a little space in between, and they typically cut at what's called a palindrome. So the most famous restriction enzyme is called ECHO-R1. This is E. coli restriction enzyme number one. I think that's why they named it that, ECHO-R1. And it cuts at GAATTC. But the cool thing about GAATTC is that on the other strand, reading backwards, it's also GAATTC. It's a palindrome, like a man, a plan, Panama. It's a sentence that reads both the same, reads the same in both directions. And in DNA, because A binds with T and C binds with G, anytime you have an A on one strand, you have a T on the other. C on one strand, you have a G on the other. So GAATTC becomes GAATTC when reading in the other direction. But the cool thing about the restriction enzymes is only some of them cut straight through. That's called a blunt end. A lot of them, in fact, most of the ones that I've ever used, they cut offset. In this case, Echo R1 cuts between the G and the first A on both strands, meaning that when the DNA separates, there are sticky ends. The TTAA is hanging out in the breeze, ready to stick to an AATT. That means that if you cut DNA with a restriction enzyme, and another piece of DNA with a restriction enzyme, mix them together and use DNA ligase to join the two DNAs together, you can join two different pieces of DNA at a very specific location. And so the linker DNA that we put onto our, our DNAs had a restriction enzyme on one side and the other, but they're two different restriction enzymes that cut at different places and leave different sticky ends. And that, therefore, we could take that and add it to another piece of DNA that had been treated with those same two enzymes. And the DNA would only insert in one direction. Okay, that is restriction enzymes. Another detour now into the world of bacterial plasmids, because we needed what's called a plasmid. A plasmid is a circular piece of DNA that many bacterial species carry. A lot of our antibiotic resistance problems are carried on uh, plasmids. A lot of plasmids carry antibiotic resistance genes, and we were using plasmid that had an antibiotic resistance gene. I think it was ampicillin. And so if a bacteria was carrying that plasmid, it would not die if we tried to grow it on a bacterial food that had ampicillin in it. And that's a key strategy for what we were doing. So what we did is we took this plasmid that had been engineered heavily. It had an ampicillin gene in it, and it had one particular place with a lot of different cut sites for restriction enzymes. Most of the restriction enzyme sites had been engineered out of the plasmid, but in one place there's like, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 15, I don't know how many there are, a whole bunch of possible cut sites on purpose so that there's a lot of flexibility. So we took our DNA, we cut it with two different restriction enzymes, 
and we had looked at the original green fluorescent protein gene, and we saw that those things don't cut the original, so hopefully they wouldn't cut the coral version, even though we're dealing with a jellyfish version. And we mixed it in with this plasmid that had been treated with these two enzymes, added DNA ligase, and now we had what's called the library. We had random coral RNAs in plasmids that we could put into DNA, into, into bacteria, sorry. Now, how do you get into bacteria? You electrocute the bacteria, literally. We had this machine that run a giant electric spark through these little plastic things. And inside the plastic thing, there was two pieces of metal that came very close together. And if you take your bacterial solution or your, your DNA solution, mix it in with your bacteria, and you could pipette it and just put a drop in between these two little metal plates. And then you push a button and it goes kablam! Literally, it sends a giant spark, it goes pop! Sometimes the lid would pop off the thing inside the machine. But you just electrocute your bacteria. It's called electroporation. And during electroporation, the bacteria pores open up and they suck DNA in. So now we just have these random coral RNAs that have been inserted randomly, but always in the same direction, into a plasmid with an antibiotic resistance gene. We just electrocuted the bacteria. Some of them didn't get the, the DNA. Some of them got the wrong DNA, the one we were looking for. All we did was we took it and we spread it on agar, which is an extract of, of a seaweed that they add a lot of nutrients to so bacteria can grow on it, but it also had the antibiotic in it. Now, if I just did that, I wouldn't know how many bacteria I had. So what you do is what's called a serial dilution. You take a drop from your first initial thing, you put it on your agar plate, spread it. Then you take it and you dilute it one to 10 and do it again, dilute it one to 10, do it again, dilute it one to 10, do it again. So the first plate is usually just a complete lawn of overlapping colonies, you can't see anything. Second, third plate maybe, um, you might have individual colonies. The goal was to get about a thousand colonies on a plate because you could count them and they're separate, they're not usually overlapping and they're, they're individual little colonies that you can work with. Later on down in the dilution series, you get like maybe one bacteria, maybe three on a plate. You know, that's no good because the chance of you finding your green fluorescent protein in two or three bacteria is really small. But in a plate of about a thousand, that first plate I ever saw had three green colonies. And I said, it worked. Unbelievably amazing. Now the next thing we did is we went for the red fluorescent protein because the green fluorescent protein already existed. No one had a red fluorescent, but we had all these red fluorescent corals. So I took a soft coral, I think it was a Discosoma species, and it, I basically um, took a razor blade and, and cut a slice out of it, like, like cutting up a pizza. So I took that coral, put it back in the tank, and I took that little, that pizza slice of the coral and I chopped it up and I extracted the RNA. And I did all the process that I did before and I got it into the E. coli. And the next morning I went in the lab and I looked, and there were no red fluorescent colonies. I was very disappointed. And so I was like, ah, oh, forget this. This didn't work. I can do something else. And the next day, my partner said, hey, did you check those plates again? I said, no, there's nothing there. He goes, go check the plates. Man, I'm so glad he was more patient than me. So I went back in the incubator. I pulled it out and I looked and sure enough, there was a red fluorescent colony. Not super bright yet, but it was developing. In fact, it eventually developed into what looked like a piece of lipstick. It was so red. It was incredible. But it turns out that the red fluorescent protein takes longer to form than the green fluorescent protein. So it took longer for our colony to become red. And I was sitting there in my lab and I was about to leave to go to Indonesia to this ma massive uh, international conference on coral reefs. And I was gonna do a presentation on my doctoral work. And I had this, this plate with this one fluorescent protein in my hand. I'm literally sitting there saying, 
this is a million dollars. I was wrong, it's probably $10 million, but what did I know? I'm like, this is a million dollars. And on the other hand, I had a paper. Came out that day, red fluorescent proteins. This group in Moscow, Russia, had been working for years trying to clone a red fluorescent protein. And they had gone down to their aquarium store in Moscow and bought the same little soft coral that I bought at my aquarium store in Miami. It probably came from the same uh, village in Indonesia where they're harvesting these little red fluorescent polyps. And they had worked for years on this. And they had done exactly what I did, just in a different way. They came to the same conclusion they had the red fluorescent protein. So I didn't get a patent on the red fluorescent protein. I got patents on two green fluorescent proteins, fine, but the red was what we were going for. But it's okay. In the world of science, it's the first one who publishes wins, which is an interesting anecdote going back to Darwinism because we should be call not calling this Darwinian evolution. No, because Darwin was not first to the post. They engineered it so that he would be, but that's in the past. Right now we're talking about today, green fluorescent, red fluorescent proteins, amazing technologies, and um, just amazing science. I mean, to be there. Do you understand that science is supposed to be magisterial? As we're learning things, we should be praising God with what we learn. And here I am working in this laboratory that's doing cutting edge research, doing things that no one ever seen before. And I remember sitting there thinking a couple times in my career, looking at something saying, no one's ever seen this. God hid this at creation. And for some reason, he chose me to reveal it. What a humbling experience. And that's part of the, uh, the genetic engineering things happening here. Very humbling, very intimidating when we get to other aspects of genetic engineering. But I don't have a problem with genetic engineering of fish. Why? Because I eat fish. Fish are not humans. They don't have a soul. They're not morally accountable. They don't have the same things that humans have. Experiment on human embryos. I did a whole series on that. Evil should not be done. Experimenting on fish? Open question. Personally, I had no problem, especially because my laboratory, our goal was to develop cancer models. We, by the time I left, we had that green fluorescent protein next to metallothionine gene. So when you expose a fish to a heavy metal, it would turn green and very slowly turn not green. We had it next to a heat shock protein. So when you stress the fish in many different ways, it would turn green. Problem is there's always a little bit green, but we can make it more green or less green. The goal was to get it next to a cancer gene so that when the fish got cancer, it would turn green, or at least the, the tumor would turn green. And when it was cured, it would no longer be green. That is a noble endeavor. That, that takes all my moral issues and puts them aside because to sacrifice a few fish to save a single human life is going to be worth it. All right, another little aside into the morality of the issue. So we have DNA in corals, converting, uh, taking out the RNA, converting it into DNA, adding linkers, treating them with restriction enzymes, treating a bacterial plasma with restriction enzymes, ligating it, electroporating the bacteria, plating them out. Now, I'm only up to bacteria here. How do we get it into fish? Well, more amazing technology. First of all, we need something that the fish are going to express, not a bacterial plasmid. We need a fish plasmid or a circular piece of DNA that has something in it that's going to turn a gene on in a fish. And for that, we use what was called the ocean pout antifreeze protein promoter. The ocean pout is a fish that's famous for not being able to freeze. It produces a massive amount of these short little proteins that we call antifreeze proteins, and it fills the blood with them and they prevent ice crystals from forming. So the fish can't freeze, at least even at very cold, it probably can freeze eventually, 
but not under icy conditions. The fish will not be frozen. Amazing. Well, we reasoned that if that fish produces a lot of that protein, that promoter for the protein that turns the protein on must be very strong. So we had this, this piece of DNA with a promoter for that gene in it, and we treat it with enzymes. We took the DNA out of the bacteria, treat it with new restriction enzymes, ligated it into the circular, sometimes a linear piece of DNA that we then put it into fish. And how do we do that? You literally inject it into fish eggs. A lot of you are familiar with zebra danios. They're very popular aquarium fish. They're very, they're, they swim a lot and they're, they're really cool. They got stripes on them. Well, if you've ever had zebra danios in a tank, you'll notice that when the lights turn off, they all go back into the corner of the tank and they start fighting. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, they're not actually uh, fighting. Uh -huh. So if you have a tank that has no sand or gravel at the bottom, the eggs that are happening here, that are newly fertilized, falling to the bottom, you can take a pipette and you can pull up the eggs. Now you have brand new fertilized fish eggs that have not yet divided. So you're working here at night because the fish spawn right at, as, as the lights are turning off. You go into your laboratory, you put the eggs in water, in a little dish under a, just a simple dissecting microscope, the large enough to see, so you can use an easy microscope. And then you have a microscope slide in there that's been scratched. And that scratch is really handy because when you add the eggs, they stick to the scratch and they line up. And then you take your DNA that you have pulled out of the bacteria and you've ligated into this circular piece of DNA with the ocean pout antifreeze protein gene promoter. And you add a little bit of dye and a pump. And you pump it through a very fine glass needle. You made this by taking a glass tube and holding over Bunsen burner and pulling it. And when it snaps, you have the sharpest glass needle that you can make. And you just hook it up to your little hose and you look under your microscope and there are your fish eggs and here's your DNA solution flowing through and you say, stab, 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 stab. And you stab all the fish eggs with your DNA. Now, okay, this is not really good for the fish eggs. Half of them are gonna die right away. For the ones that don't die, some of them will be greenish. Most of them not. But for some of them, because the DNA is just sitting there in a cell, uh, non-nucleus, and the, the, the sperm and the egg DNA just fused, well, your DNA now is in that, and sometimes it can attach to a chromosome. And once it does that, it's inheritable. And you can have DNA being passed from generation to generation in these fish, and that's what we did. And that's how we made our, the frankenfish, the green fluorescent fish and the red fluorescent fish. And we had a fish with two different fluorescent proteins and it was kind of pumpkin colored. They're really, really pretty. We made yellowish fish, oranges fish, all these amazing fish. One of them, the green fluorescent protein looked like it landed next to a gene that's only expressed in nerves. And so as the fish embryo was developing, the, like the brain would be green. We could watch a spinal cord become green. It looked like we could see the nerves uh, innervating the muscles. I mean, it was so cool. But um, in order to make the fish green, you had to take over, we figured, about 10% of the fish's metabolism. That's a lot of effort to producing a massive amount of this protein. And every time the protein formed, it kicks off a hydrogen peroxide. And hydrogen peroxide is, of course, toxic. So we were toxifying the nervous system of the fish, and that line didn't last very long. Other lines, though, they lasted just fine for a long time. And people have been working with these long enough, they now have healthy, robust fish with these genes in their, in their DNA, and they can do all sorts of experiments with them. And the green fluorescent protein family has become an amazing toolkit for the modern geneticist, because it's a gene you can see. 
Not only that, you can see the protein. So you can just take the protein and tag chromosomes or tag proteins with it in the cell. You can watch things move around in the cell using these, these proteins. So between the gene and the protein, the colors, I, I can't believe I got to be there at the beginning of this huge multi-billion dollar field of fluorescent protein research. Now, one more detour, and that is a description of the protein itself because the protein is a wonder. Most proteins, if left to themselves, are gonna misfold. And so you can't just take a protein from an animal, stick it in bacteria. Bacteria won't be able to fold it. It probably won't work. But this protein folds all by itself. And interestingly, it forms a perfect barrel. The outside is completely sealed by amino acids. The top and the bottom are completely sealed by amino acids. Not even water can get inside this barrel. And down the middle of the barrel runs an amino acid chain that because these amino acids in this protein, they have side, side chains that are sticking into the barrel, well, the positives and negatives and the polar and nonpolar parts of those, of those amino acids are, are twisting that strand in the middle. The strand itself has amino acids that are reacting with the side chains. And it, what happens is the entire protein forms a kink right down the middle. These three amino acids will circularize. And when they circularize with a, with a covalent bond, that causes single bond, double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond, double bond, single bond, double bond in this huge network of single and double bonds. And a cool thing about double bonds is the uh, two carbon atoms, when they have a double bond, they share the electrons between two different atoms. But if you have a double bond and a single bond next to each other, that's not really true. They're really, the, the double bond flips back and forth. And so that those electrons are shared between three carbon atoms. If you have a network of double and single bonds, the electrons are shared amongst all the carbon atoms. And that electron has a that's called a frequency. And if that frequency is tuned to be the same frequency as blue light, when a photon of blue light strikes that electron, the electron will absorb it. It'll be boosted to a higher energy level. And when it falls back to the original energy level, it re-releases the photon. But because the laws of thermodynamics is always a loss of energy, the photon that comes out has a lower energy. This is why it goes from blue to green or green to red. Those are lower energy outputs from a higher energy input. So we had this protein that spontaneously forms. It doesn't need chaperones. It doesn't need chaperones. It doesn't need to be modified because most proteins after they're made in the cell, the cell might, it modifies them. It, it adds sugars to it. it it'll, it'll cleave the protein like in insulin. It will add things to it. All these different things happen to proteins. Most proteins aren't just the protein. The cell does amazing complicated things to proteins. But the green fluorescent protein is not that way. It's a protein where you can take the RNA, messenger RNA out of a coral, put it in bacteria. The bacteria will produce that protein. The protein will spontaneously form. The fluorophore will spontaneously form inside the protein. And then you have a working green fluorescent protein. Now the red fluorescent protein actually is the same as the green fluorescent protein. It's just there's another amino acid that can also covalently link to that network of double and single bonds. And when that happens, it creates a longer double single bond network, which means now it absorbs photons of a longer wavelength. But it's a secondary reaction that happens after the fact. When we started making weird colors, we said, wow, we just made a color that's in between the green and the red. Well, we put it in the spectrofluorometer and it had the green peak and the red peak. What? Yeah, because green and red were together, but it was tricking our eyes and our eyes were looking at it thinking it was kind of like a yellowish color, but it wasn't. It was green and red mixed together. Cool. So all this work, 
leading to two patents, leading to my doctoral work. And there you have the way to make a transgenic uh, organism. Today we use CRISPR, but a lot of times they use electroporation to get the CRISPR enzyme system into the cell. We can modify a lot of things. It's not necessarily a bad thing to genetically modify an organism. And happily, that is true because if it weren't, we wouldn't be able to eat at the grocery store. We wouldn't be able to take almost any modern medicine. There's so much of um, this, this technology that has permeated our lives that we can no longer extract ourselves from it. However, there is a limit to genetic engineering and that should be absolutely the first limit we should set is we should never allow the genetic engineering of human embryos because one, you're experimenting embryos which you have to kill a lot of before you figure out how to do it. And second, uh, if that embryo was implanted into a woman and, and she comes to term and bears a child, that child does not have the ability to accede to what you did to it. You did to something the child, the child had no control over. Now, genetically modifying adults is a whole nother subject. I know that it's, it's, you don't want to just like stick something in your arm at random, but what if you can cure blindness in an adult? And what if you can cure blindness in an adult that isn't planning on having any children? And what if you can cure blindness in an adult using a process that did not involve the murder of babies to learn this technology? Well, what would be wrong with that? That's an open question. It's an interesting question. But now that we understand how genetic engineering a little bit is done, we can have a more intelligent conversation on the benefits and the moral aspects of genetic engineering. That's it for today. That was a long one. I got long-winded because I got into my Ballywick and that was a lot of fun for me. This is actually the, um, the second time I've recorded this. Last week I was in Texas and I got down to the Paluxy River, the famous places where there's claims of dinosaur tracks and human tracks together. No, I don't believe that. And none of the major creationist organizations, uh, organizations believe that. But there are these claims. I've seen pictures and I went down to, to the museum down there, but they're not open on a Monday. I didn't know that. But I tried to go see the originals. So, you know, I'm willing to be persuaded. Uh, but I got down there and um, the, the rangers, the site had chosen, they showed up and they started with this big pump and they were cleaning out the dinosaur tracks in the river. And so it was too noisy. A bunch of people came by. So I walked down the river a little bit and then the wind picked up and it was so windy that my, my microphone, my backup microphone, they're overwhelmed by the noise. I, I just decided it would be better just to redo it. Now, even though here I'm in Florida, it's windy again. The sun is coming in and out of the clouds. There's a lot of background noise. Actually, I haven't even been paying attention to what's happening behind me. I hear, I hear loudspeakers. I have no idea some splashing. Oh yeah, there's boats back there. Cool. Anyway, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you're encouraged a little bit maybe a little bit better informed about what's happening in the world of technology. But before I go, as always, I must thank my supporters. You people are amazing. If you'd like to help support my work on biblical genetics, there'll be links in the show notes or on biblicalgenetics.com. I have two forms. One is my monthly uh, supporters who are coming to me through patreon.com. If you'd like to become a patron, the sign-up link is right there. And another group of people that um, on buymeacoffee.com, every time I post a video, they might you know, send me a, a digital coffee or two or three or something like that. Really appreciate you guys. Love you all. I hope you're encouraged by God, by the Bible, by science, and hope in some way something that I've said has helped you be a better Christian in this complicated and troubling amoral world.